It's been four months since I jotted down those thoughts inside my cell in Angola. And now the journey for answers continues. Once again, from the inside, we've gathered some of the top authorities on criminal justice reform for a discussion inside the walls of New York's Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Obviously, your best day was getting out of prison. What was the lowest day? Every time I think about that, so. Like so many other people, I'd heard about criminal justice reform, but over the last couple of years, I've done story after story after story that has really opened up my eyes in a different way. It's an American crisis. Something like 2.3 million people behind bars right now. That works out, I'm told, about one in every 37 people. America's prison population began exploding in the early 70s with the war on drugs, mandatory minimum sentences, and the tough-on-crime policies of both parties. We have become the most punitive society in the world. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The rate of incarceration in this country, you look at that against a chart against NATO countries, you have to look at the numbers and understand this isn't working. It affects families, the economy, and disproportionately, people of color. I remember in my days as a street reporter in Chicago, talking to kids who would say, you know, my only choice is I'm either going to end up dead or I'm going to end up in prison. We owe it to ourselves to create a kind of society where humans have the ability to stand back up. The kind of society where there really is justice for all. and welcome to Sing Sing Correctional Facility. We're about 30 miles north of New York City. For most of you watching, this is as close as you'll ever come to being in prison. But for more than two million Americans, life behind bars is a daily reality. In the last hour, you saw us reporting from inside Louisiana's Angola prison. Over the next hour here at Sing Sing, we'll be talking to some of the key people making a difference on this issue. Experts, officials, victims of crime, and men incarcerated here at Sing Sing. This country locks people up at a rate greater than any country on earth, especially people of color. It's called mass incarceration, and it comes at a terrible cost in dollars and in human lives. We've seen this problem grow into an American crisis in our lifetimes. It's a story I've returned to again and again. Today, here at Sing Sing, we'll focus on how we got here, what we've learned, and how together we can make things better. Among our guests today, award-winning singer-songwriter John Legend, who has made criminal justice reform a personal crusade. He'll be joining us shortly, as will former Attorney General Loretta Lynch and others. But let's start by welcoming the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson. Brian, great to see you. Great to see you. I want to um, start off with a chart. We're going to hear a lot of statistics, but I want to start off with a chart you know all too well. 1972, fewer than 300,000 people were locked up in our prisons. You look at that chart, it's like Mount Everest going to 2016, one and a half million. That doesn't count, by the way, those sitting in, in jails, local jails. How did we get here? Well, it's first important to acknowledge that throughout most of the 20th century, we were pretty stable. Uh, that number remained under 250,000. 
And then in the 1970s, I think we were captured by what I call the politics of fear and anger. Elected officials began using rhetoric of fear and anger and directing it toward people who uh, were drug addicted and drug dependent. And, and instead of saying that people who are addicted and dependent uh, need our health care system to respond, that's a health issue, we said that's a criminal justice issue. And we declared this misguided war on drugs, and we put hundreds of thousands of people in jails and prisons uh, for drug-related offenses, many of them nonviolent. But here's, but here's the rub. You, you look at big cities across America, crime rates have gone down. People will look at that and say, see, you lock them all up, and boom, crime drops. Well, I, I actually, it's not true that the incarceration boom correlates with crime going down. Actually, when we began that effort of increasing the jails and prisons populations in the 1970s and early 1980s, the crime rate went up. It actually peaked in the early 90s when we had already tripled the number of people in jails and prisons. Uh, what's had an impact on crime is actually uh, other factors, uh, the economy, social services. There's no question that we live in a violent society, but you can't actually say we're actually helping to control violence by putting so many people in jails and prisons, people who are not even considered to be a threat to others. And in fact, I actually think mass incarceration has made us less safe. We've actually spent $80 billion on jails and prisons when we could have spent some of that money on creating programs that actually help people uh, avoid offending in the first place. Every time I, I see you, I ask the same question because I wrestle with it. And I certainly wrestle, wrestled with it in Angola. What is the purpose of prison? Is it punishment? Is it retribution? Is it rehabilitation? Well, I think it's, it's got to be all of those things, but mostly it's about safety, right? And the problem is, is that we've gone through an era where our politicians and elected officials and judges and prosecutors and too many people in law enforcement uh, only think they're punishing crime. We can't send crimes to prison. We send people to prison. We can't punish a crime. We have to punish a person. And when you're only thinking about the crime, it's easy to say death penalty, life imprisonment without parole, 50 years, 100 years, 300 years. But crimes don't do time. People do. And when you start thinking about the people, you realize it's more complicated. I believe in accountability. I hate violence. I don't want to create, I want to create policies that protect us. I want to intervene when people are a threat to other people. I want to intervene when people are a threat to themselves. But I also believe in redemption. I believe in restoration. I believe in reconciliation. I believe in rehabilitation. I believe in fairness. I believe in mercy. And I believe in justice. And we have a system that has no room for that. And that's how we've gotten into this situation. And then the question then turns to who belongs here. And on that note, you've talked a lot about uh, juveniles being sent to maximum security prisons. I'm going to hold off on the question because I want to look at some of the incarcerated here. Were any of you sentenced here as teenagers? Kelpie, I'm going to go talk to a couple of you. Let me grab a microphone here. What's your name? John, John Cateus. John, tell me, uh, tell me when you were sentenced here. I was sentenced at 25 years to life at the age of 16. Did you, this, obviously, for what crime? Murder. Obviously, the state thought you were a man. Did you feel like a man at that time? No, I didn't feel like anything. I just didn't know. You know, my mind just wasn't in the right set. You know, I couldn't think past five minutes at that age. And you were suddenly in an adult prison? Just thrown right into it. All right. Thank you for talking to us. Let me turn back now. With that in mind, Brian... Do even violent criminals brought as teenagers, do they belong in a maximum security adult I, prison? I don't. I actually don't think we should put any children in adult jails and prisons. We recognize in this society that there's a difference 
between children and adults. We don't let uh, 17-year-olds vote for a reason. We don't let them drink. We don't let them smoke. We recognize that your opportunity to develop isn't complete. And so we say we're going to actually protect you from things that might hurt you. But in this era of fear and anger, we just threw that out the, the, out the, out, out the room. And you make said, no exception for a violent crime, murder. No, I actually think, you know, we have too many children in this country who are born into violent families. They live in violent neighborhoods. Their lives are shaped in a crucible of violence. And when you're surrounded by addiction and dependency and trauma, and people are threatening you and menacing you, and nobody's helping, you are going to react violently. But I don't think that's all about that child. That's about the rest of us. So no, I don't think uh, we should be putting children in adult jails and prisons. And, and I also think we've got a lot of reform work to do in this space. We've got 13 states in this country that have no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. So when I'm, I'm in Angola prison, I meet a guy named Henry Montgomery, 17 years old, killed a cop, life in prison, no possibility of parole. He was 72 when I, I met him. We talked to the grandson of his victim. And I want to play this because this opens up a whole other question about where we're going here. Here it is. There's no parole for Charles Hurt. You know, he's, he's, his life sentence is permanent. You know? And my mom, my aunt, my uncle, our belief in the system is that it, it, it's equal justice. Quite honestly, I, I don't think anybody can sit there and say that he can never be a threat again. He needs to finish doing whatever his obligations are to get the parole. If he's ever granted parole, then uh, congratulations to him. Uh, but personally, I think he's, he's where he needs to be. I'm imagining a lot of people right now listening to that man and shaking their heads. Yeah, I'd feel the same way if that, if that was a family member of mine. We look at so much of criminal justice right now through statistics and charts like we showed a moment ago. But how do you remove or do you remove that, that personal, that emotional connection? How do you take that out of the equation as you look at mass incarceration? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, we have all these relationships. My grandfather was murdered when I was 16 by juveniles. I've had family members sexually assaulted. Uh, I understand the pain of that. What I want to say to people is, look, we can do better then beat up on the people who commit these crimes. We can actually start working on how we create an environment where there's less murder, less rape, less violence. I do believe we have to hold people accountable. But we can't be a society that wants every member to not be defined by the worst thing we've done. If you want that for yourself, if you want mercy for yourself, then you have to be willing to give it to other people. And I just think that we actually can't be evolved. We can't be decent. I do believe that we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. I think if somebody tells a lie, they're not just a liar. I think if they take something, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill somebody, you're not just a killer. And we've got to understand the other things you are before we judge you. And I just think a world without mercy is not a world that's going to allow us to progress. And if a family member is too angry and too broken and too hurt uh, to not be able to see that, that's okay. I don't think we should leave it to that. We have an organized society that has to step in. That's why it's the people versus Henry Montgomery. It's the state. It's not that offender. And I don't want a world where the people who are victimized by crime are responsible for making sure that they get the justice that they deserve. I don't think that's a fair world. And what we see too often is that wealth, race, economic status, poor people, black people, brown people, undocumented people are victimized so much more 
than other communities because we've created a world too much where it turns on the status of the victim. And I don't think that's fair. All right, Brian, I'm going to pause our conversation because I want to bring another voice into it if I can. I want to welcome a guy I think most people here know, singer, songwriter, an activist, and also the founder of Free America, John Legend. John, good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for joining us. You two know each other. I'm, uh, we know each other very well. I'm well aware. You, uh, we should know you spent some time with uh, some of the inmates here at Sing Sing before yes. our broadcast. You do this around the country. What do you, what do you talk about? Well, what we've done with Free America, we've gone on a listening and learning tour. We've gone to a lot of facilities around the country, state, county, federal facilities, juvenile facilities, and we listen to people. We want to hear what their issues are, what their experiences have been, what led them to get to these facilities in the first place. And we want to really go out and tell their stories. And it, it's been really powerful for me to listen to folks who are in the system who often aren't heard from. And like Brian said, we need to realize these folks are human. These folks are our family members, our community members. And they shouldn't be only defined by the worst thing they've done. And um, we talked a lot about people's families today. And we have to realize every time we lock someone up, we're locking their family up with them. I said it was collateral damage today, and somebody correctly corrected me and said, no, it's primary damage. Because it's not just collateral damage when a, a child loses their father or their mother. That's primary damage that's felt by that family. And there's 2.7 million children in America right now who have at least one parent in prison. And we're going we're to get into that a little later, but we should note that you have a personal story here. Um, briefly tell me your mom's story. Well, my mother, um, she responded to the loss of her mother by getting depressed and then self-medicating with illegal drugs. And so she spent some time in the local jail. She wasn't uh, incarcerated for a long time, but um, I have plenty of family members who have been through the system. And we've seen both as remaining family members who are still in the community, and we've seen with, with the individuals themselves the need for a smarter system that actually helps people get better. Because my mother didn't need to be locked up during that time. She needed help. She needed help with her dependency issues and the trauma that she went through having lost her mother. And I think so many folks are reacting to the traumas that they've felt the fear that they feel in their neighborhoods by doing something they shouldn't do, doing something that's illegal. Um, but we're not fixing the problem by locking them up for a long period of time when we should be really trying to figure out a way to help and them. And before we go to a quick break, Brian, uh, just, just very quickly, react to that notion, primary damage as opposed to collateral damage. I don't think there's any question. I have been in too many homes where mothers and daughters and children and brothers have actually been so shattered by the loss of someone, particularly when they think that their loved one is being treated unfairly, that they've been wrongly convicted. And we've got a lot of people who are straight up innocent in our jails and prisons. We shouldn't ignore the fact that we make a lot of mistakes in this system. So it is a crisis that we need to address. All right, gentlemen, our thanks to Brian Stevenson for being here and John Legend. We're going to ask you to stay with us here. Uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about what's happening right now to break the cycle of mass incarceration. And we'll take a look at how rapper Meek Mill has put some long-standing policies in the spotlight. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're here at New York Sing Sing Prison, and we want to talk for a moment about rapper Meek Mill. I've spoken with him many times over the past year or so. He's a well-known advocate of prison reform, and he's seen the problem up close. Run-ins with the law as a teenager landed him behind bars, and for years afterward, 
He was tripped up by technical violations of his probation, things like failing to report travel plans. Some high-profile supporters rallied to his cause, including Jay-Z and Philadelphia 76ers co-owner Michael Rubin. It's just simple as getting a technical violation and losing your job, losing your house, losing your family. Trying to go to work and my travel schedule got confused with my probation officer. I don't think that's nothing to be placed in a cell, you know, and people kind of looked at that as normal. But, but the rules are the rules. And if you violate, you can go back to jail. Some of these rules are only designed for certain people to fail, like kids coming in there getting 10, 15 years of probation and, you know, going back to prison for not even committing crime. Tell me how your life has changed, what you have done since getting out of prison. We started a, a foundation called Reform. We connect a lot of powerful people, people who have a lot of resources. And we're trying to make change and uh, make the system better. And you're trying to change and create laws here. Yeah, we, we want to go state by state. We're starting first in Pennsylvania, where Meek's from, and where I'm from, where there's 300,000 people on probation. They have no caps on probation. So we want to get a million people out of the system by 2023 while keeping communities safe. The morning after you were released, yeah, uh, you told me you wanted to be a voice for the voiceless, and you're doing that. Yeah, you know, I brushed shoulders with a lot of people who actually lost their whole lives to the system. When I got out of there, I wanted to use my voice and doing the most with my opportunities. You know, that's what I always wanted to do. I got a chance, a shot, and I'm taking it. All right, let's jump right into this. We're joined once again by John Legend, and we're happy to welcome former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, who served under President Obama and who has spoken out about how tough it can be for former prisoners to re-enter society. Also with us is Nick Turner, who leads the Vera Institute of Justice in fighting for criminal justice reform. And we do want to acknowledge Matthew Charles, who earlier this year became one of the first prisoners released out of the Federal First Step Act. And uh, Matthew, we're going to talk to you a little bit later, but I want to acknowledge you. Uh, as I start off with uh, Attorney General Lynch, and let's talk about the, the First Step Law. Um, we just heard you know, the idea that probation, that's one policy that people are talking about right now. But another is this idea of early release for those convicted of nonviolent uh, criminal offenses. Has it gone far enough? You know, I think it's a good step. It is, in fact, a first step. It's a culmination of a lot of discussions people have been having on these issues for years. And I'm hopeful it's the beginning of ongoing bipartisan discussions. But if you really want to deal with the problems of mass incarceration, we're going to have to deal with keeping people out of prison in the first place. Once they are here, we have to recognize that what we have is untapped human capital and give people true opportunities to earn the credits to come home early. And then once they, in fact, earn those credits or win clemency or win leniency, give them a meaningful path to truly come home. And we should point out, as you know well, the First Step Act only affects federal prisoners, yes. and that's a pretty small piece of the pie. So what is happening on the state level? We, we talked about Louisiana earlier, but what's going on there? Yes. You know, actually, the states have been leading the way on this issue for quite some time. For many states, states that people typically don't think of as involved in prison reform, Texas, my home state of North Carolina, uh, and others, have looked at this issue for years and have, and have looked at it primarily from an economic point of view. Um, they focus on the human cost and the moral issues, but states quickly realize that the cost of prison, which has risen over six hundred percent since 1980 was something that they could not sustain and that by making smaller investments in prevention programs and in reentry programs in diversion programs in drug treatment programs particularly keeping nonviolent offenders out of prison and giving them a true path to health again not only did they reduce their prison populations 
crime has gone down in those states. And this is a discussion about policy. And, and as you unearth one policy issue, there's many more behind it, obviously. But, uh, John, one of the things you're looking at uh, with your foundation is the box, that box that, that you, get, you get out of prison, you've got an education, you're ready to go, and you fill out that application. There's a little box there yeah. that says what? Well, it says, have you committed a felony before? Have and you, you got to check it. And you have to check it. And what ends up happening is in all these different ways, but that all add up, we're saying to people when you get out of prison that you're never able to shake that. We're saying you can't get housing. We're saying you can't get a job. We're saying it's going to be hard for you to navigate life. In some states, you can't vote. Um, we're making it almost impossible for be- people to become citizens again. We want them to integrate back into society. We need them to. We need them to. The way they're going to keep us safe, the way they're going to keep their themselves and their family safe, is if they're able to get a job, if they're able to reintegrate. And if we want to prevent recidivism, which is people returning to prison, uh, we need to make sure that people have options when they come out of prison. I want to turn to Nick right now, uh, again, on this policy issue. You've been looking at a lot about what happens inside the razor wire here, uh, both here and the United States. What are some of the what's some of the low hanging fruit in terms of policy reform in prisons? You know, this gets right to the point that Loretta was talking about and the First Step Act. I think of the First Step Act as the appetizer. It is only as good as the second and third and fourth steps that happen after that. And we've talked about how the state and local systems are really the ones that run criminal justice. But the federal government can do a lot, too. We are sitting on top of uh, the 25th anniversary of the 1994 crime bill which didn't create mass incarceration, but it accelerated it. And it did things like create a $10 billion pot of money to persuade states to end uh, you know, early release, to expand sentences. And Basically, then if the, you lock people up longer, we'll help you build And then what prisons. the federal government says, and, and we'll give you money to build prisons. And it did things like end uh, Pell Grants for incarcerated students. We have an opportunity right now on the 25th anniversary to actually reinstate Pell. That's an example. And it is bipartisan. Republicans and Democrats agree. And we should be asking the federal government to do more. Clearly, the 1994 crime bill was an aberration. It was terrible. But So what we need from the federal government, and it may not happen today or tomorrow, but we need to figure out how the federal government can actually drive decarceration in this country. I, I want to ask you, because one of the things that has, has fascinated me as we on this journey was what you guys have done at the Vera Institute in terms of looking overseas, yeah. what they're doing in Europe. I know one size doesn't fit all, but what things struck you there that, that we should be thinking about in this conversation? Well, we've been talking so much about humanity and centering the humanity of people who are unfortunate enough to be... Um, in contact with the justice system. And that is the most important thing that I took away from my time in Germany and and Norway, which is that human dignity is central. Uh, That's a hard concept, perhaps, for people to understand. So let me just tell you a story that gives a great example. We took a delegation of a governor and corrections officials and heads of right and left organizations to Germany. And the very first prison that we visited was something called an open prison. It is a place where people, uh, they sleep. Um, but they go out to be with their family or they can, they can work. Um, and it sat next door to a, 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 a equestrian center for children. So it was mind boggling immediately, this idea of an open prison. We're sitting there, we're having a conversation and a gentleman walks by us and he nods shyly and he stops at his door and he takes keys out of his pocket 
and he unlocks the door and he takes off his outside shoes and he puts on slippers and he goes inside. And he was someone who was housed there and he's being treated like a human being who is going to be released and who the corrections officials thought was absolutely important well, that they prepare him for that. Let release. me turn to someone who I think was on one of those tri trips, uh, Deanna Hoskins, sitting here in the, in the front row. Deanna uh, was formerly incarcerated, and now you've dedicated a lot of your life to some of these policy issues. I asked about low-hanging fruit. What do you think can change in the near term? So when we actually look at what, happened in, what happens in Germany, the fact that individuals are seen as humans. So when you start making policies for the individuals that you're talking about and you see them as humans, you started responding as human, with human dignity. And one of the things I think that happened in Germany is they created policies to make sure they never recreate the Holocaust. So they have healed from their harms. In America, we haven't healed from this aspect of slavery, and our criminal justice system is replicating and resembling an element of slavery, and black and brown bodies are the results of that that we are seeing incarcerated. And, and Loretta Lynch, I said. You were, a, you were a prosecutor in New York, federal prosecutor in New York. When you were prosecuting cases, did you think about the conditions that that the convicted would be going to it? You know, you, you do. And I will tell you, I became a prosecutor in 1990. And I was a narcotics prosecutor. And one of the first things that struck me, Lester, was that so many of the people that I was prosecuting could just as easily have been the victims in the crimes that, that I was considering them for. And so it makes you realize that your role is bigger than just sending people on this assembly line into prison. And you also look at the communities from which people came. And these are communities that often don't get the protection of the law, but they get the hammer of the law all the time. And so if you can, in fact, expand opportunities in communities and work on prevention programs, you can keep people from actually starting down that path. You do think about it. I remember vividly standing in court uh, before we abolished life sentences for juveniles and hearing a federal district judge sentence a young man who was at the time 18, but had committed the crime just before he was 18, sentence him to life in prison for something that he had done because a statute called for it. No one in that courtroom thought that was the way, that that was the right thing to do. But we all were in that process. Uh, and so we have to look, we have to learn from what we have been doing. One of the benefits we have now, it is the 25th anniversary of the 94 crime bill. We now know what works and we know what doesn't work. Mass incarceration has not made us safer. It has, in fact, decimated communities, it has torn apart families, and it has harmed children. That should not be a part of our justice system. Those are not the goals of justice, and we have to look at it from that perspective. And that's why we have a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a short break, and after that break, we're going to talk about the real damage caused by our broken prison system, the harm that comes to families and innocent children. It's hard because, as a man, you know, you was a boy at one point, you know what you needed. And I know he needs these things, and I'm not there to provide it. So it's hard, you know. I'm in a cell by myself now, so I can't cry when I want to cry. Sing Sing Correctional Facility has stood on the banks of the Hudson River for nearly 200 years. Some 1,500 men are incarcerated here, most of them for violent crimes. It can be a dangerous place, but it's also a place that offers inmates the tools they need to turn their lives around if they choose to. So let's keep the conversation going now with John Legend and a couple of additional guests I'd like to introduce. After 30 years as a public defender, Robin Steinberg founded the Bail Project dedicated to helping those who can't afford bail to stay out of prison. 
And a brush with prison as a young woman led to a life of activism for Topeka Sam, founder of the Ladies of Hope Ministries, focusing on helping women in prisons and on helping them get what they need out of it. She created Hope House, offering women support and safety as they transition back into society. Good to have both of you join the panel. Uh, Robin, I want to talk to you about this idea of bail. On any given night, there are almost a half million people sitting pre-trial who are sitting in jail for the only reason they can't afford a thousand bucks for their bail. That's true, and it's the tip of the iceberg. There are half a million people sleeping in jail cells tonight who can't pay bail. But if you think about across the country, our state and local jails, we have 3,000 of them. And on any given year, we churn almost 11 million people in and out of those local jails. How does that affect women? We're in a men's prison right now, but in terms of women in the system, does the, does the bail issue disproportionately affect them? So the bail issue disproportionately impacts low-income people, people of color, and yes, women. And that is because women are at the bottom of the economic totem pole and don't make the same amount of money that men do for the same job. It's also because they are more likely the primary caregivers. 80% of women in the system are moms. They're the primary caregivers, and they're forced to make a decision between feeding their children and keeping a roof over their head or paying for their bail. So they stay in jail cells while their families are, are destroyed outside. And John, it's one of the things you see. And, and you know, we, we talked about your issues growing up as, as a kid of a mother who was incarcerated at, at some point. But but how does this impact beyond just, you know, the, the focus of, of this? Well, first of all, we have to realize this is big business. Uh, these bail bonds companies, there's a two billion dollar industry. Uh, these folks are being locked up purely because they can't afford to pay something. So essentially what we're saying is you should be locked up if you're poor. And then you, uh, on top of that, a lot of the people are locked up because they've not paid a fine or a fee for a, a minor offense. We saw in Ferguson when they did the federal uh, report on what was going on in Ferguson that a lot of folks were being targeted for these small fines and fees that start to add up. And then they get locked up because they don't pay the fees. And then they can't get out of jail because they can't pay the bail. Vicious circle. And then it's a vicious cir circle. Yeah. And, and Topeka, let's, back on the issue of how, in, the impact of women, just in general, women in the system. I know you believe, if, at least for nonviolent offenders, they should be treated differently than men. Well, I actually believe that um, women and girls should not be in prison at all, irrespective to whether it's a violent or nonviolent crime. Um, I feel like there are alternatives to incarceration that we need to start to re-put um, and reinvest money back into our communities, that, uh, to Robin's point, that women are the most vulnerable population that there is. And so outside of being mothers, there's sexual, tra sexual trauma and violence. Um, there's addiction. There's um, substance misuse. And people, specifically women, are being criminalized for this, for poverty, for substance misuse. So what does, that, what does that do to families? You know, Play it out for me. Well, you know, I mean, if women are being separated, then where are the children going? The children end up in foster care. Um, they end up in, with different family members, and then they end up broken from their parents. And so, unfortunately, what's happening is that it's spilling and it's trickling over into our communities. And then what happens is the children end up with no one. And consider the inhumanity that we're uh, perpetuating in this system. We're having women burying children right. in prisons with handcuffs and leg cuffs on. We're having women who, uh, some, some programs we visited in Washington State, there was a women's prison where they, they were uh, doing something that's a bit more humane by saying, we'll allow you to uh, raise your kids up to a certain amount of time in the facility. But then you, you turn around and think, well, that's the humane thing to do, but it's inhumane that we're even 
having these women in prison in the first place when there could be other ways of dealing with these situations that allow them to be with their families. And, and Robin, you're, you're addressing this again on, on the bail issue. Tell me what your group is doing. So we're a national not-for-profit, and what we're attempting to do is stop mass incarceration before it begins. You can't talk about mass incarceration or ending it without talking about reforming our cash bail system, right? So 99% of jail growth in this country over the past 20 years has been the result of unaffordable cash bail being set on people's cases that they don't have enough money to pay, right? And we're talking about $100, $500, $1,000. It may as well be a million for most people. I, I read something, and help me out on this, that, that you are more likely to plead guilty if, if, if you're, if you're used sitting as leverage, yes. Right. Yeah, so if you're held in a jail cell, right, where terrible things can happen, right, it's dehumanizing, it's violent, it's terrifying. And you're not being convicted. Right, you're, and, and you're held in a jail cell, and outside, your children might be taken from you, you're, you may lose your home, you may lose your job, you may throw out of school. And the only way out, if you don't have the cash to pay your cash bail, is when a judge says, if you plead guilty, I'll let you go home. Everybody will plead guilty under those circumstances. Right, and who do you think And that's wouldn't? the coercive level. Absolutely. Bail. I mean, it is coercive. And then who do you think wouldn't do that, right? If I've been sitting in for months, even a year, I would have my friends pay people's bail when I was in the county jail waiting trial myself because they were sitting there for up to a year on $100. And to think about that and think, what would you do if your children were stripped away, if you lost your house, your job, and you just wanted to get back to your family, you would plead guilty. You might think that this is foreign to, to, to most people, this idea of being involved in the system. I want to... Let me turn to the audience very quickly. And just a show of hands, how many here have had a family member or someone close to you or, or even been incarcerated yourself, uh, with, again, with family that have been impacted? All right, now this crowd, thank you, thank you. Obviously, this, this, this is an audience made up of people who are dedicated to this subject, but we sometimes lose sight of it. It's like a, a stone dropping into a pond. The ripples just keep going and going and going. And it's, I mean, it's 70 million people who have criminal convictions in this country. So though you think that it's really just in this space that people are impacted, it's, it's happening everywhere. Unfortunately, it's still this huge stigma um, around incarceration, so people don't speak up. You know, if you say it's one in every three adults, just like children, um, are impacted, have been impacted by the criminal legal system, then you would know that more than the people that actually raise their hands, even in here, have had a loved one or someone they know that's been incarcerated. And let me ask a specific question to the incarcerated men who are joining us. How many of you are dads? Wow. Uh, let me talk to, talk to this gentleman. You want to stand? Yes, please. Yeah, tell me your name. Uh, Stephen Hines. You and I uh, met. I was here recently and sat with you guys, and I asked that same question about how many were, were dads. And tell me about your legacy of incarceration. Started with my father. Then I became incarcerated, and just recently, my son has, too, become incarcerated. Did you expect, given your history, did you expect that at some point that would happen to him? We had a classroom, and we would discuss something. I mentioned that my father was incarcerated, and it was shocking to learn that the substantial majority of men that was in that room indicated that their fathers were incarcerated as well. So it caused all of us to think about our children, and we formulated a fatherhood support group. So you have you have a relationship with your yes, your I son. have a relationship with my son. All right, thanks for sharing that story with us. I mentioned it's like a stone being dropped into a into a pond. Sometimes the ripples and they go in different directions. And on that point, I want to bring in, if I can, Aswad Thomas. Aswad, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. How many? How, you're going to approach this from a victim standpoint. How many members of your family have been shot? Uh, unfortunately, including myself as a victim of gun violence, uh, five out of the ten males in my immediate family are victims of gun violence, and one of the young men 
uh, that shot me, uh, he was a victim of gun violence as well. Yeah, the, the, the individual who shot you, he was facing perhaps 40 years in prison. You as the victim, though, said, no, there's got to be a better way. And you went to the prosecutor. What did you, what did you tell him? So I wanted to talk to him first. Uh, that young man was from my community, but also I wanted to, you know, to advocate for him uh, to be able to get rehabilitation, and so that you know he, instead of getting 40 years in jail, that he would be sentenced 10 years. And, and as a victim, um, when that decision was made, that's when the healing process really started, and I felt good. Did you surprise yourself that, that you made that call? Um, I didn't surprise myself. Uh, that young man is from my community. Um, he grew up in the same environment that I did, um, and so we, we were no different. Um, I just had the opportunity to go to college, become the first-generation college graduate. Thank you for sharing your story, and I'm glad you're well. I'm glad you're well. And uh, Loretta Lynch, before before we go to a break, I just want to get your thoughts on this cycle of incarceration and the, and the ripple effects on families and those who are affected. Mm -hmm. You can stand up if you would, yeah. Yes, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. What we're doing is when you incarcerate an individual, you are incarcerating a family. And if you're going to have a truly effective justice system, that has to be foremost in our consideration. We have to find ways to keep families connected while parents are in prison, particularly when mothers have young children and need that connection. But it's part of recognizing the humanity that binds all of us. We're talking about how do we treat people who've broken the laws of society? How would we want to be treated? if we broke those same laws as well. So we've got to always keep that in the forefront of our mind as well. All right, Loretta Lynch, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break. When we come back, most people behind bars will get out sooner or later. But to many of them, they end up right back in prison. Some ideas about how to break that cycle based on firsthand experience when we continue in just a moment. In 2001, he was found guilty of running a massive drug ring. My sentence was 150 years. That's right, 150 years. Our cameras weren't allowed inside the parole hearing room. About an hour later, Estine's family walked out first. Former inmate John Esteen released on parole from Louisiana's Angola prison earlier this year after a long battle to get out from under a 150-year sentence for drug violations. And that brings us back to Matthew Charles. And we met earlier, Matthew got out of prison in January after more than two decades behind bars on drug and gun charges, a beneficiary of the newly enacted First Step Act, a first step toward prison reform. But getting out itself is often just the first step of a long and difficult journey. And here to talk about that right now is Matthew Charles. Matthew, great to have you with us. You, you and I spoke when you were locked up. I spoke right after you left. Did that scene we just showed look familiar to you? Yes, it did. That moment of freedom? Embarrassing. What, did, what, were, your, what were you thinking that moment about your future? Uh, from walking out, I was thinking about just being back reunited with my family and friends. But the fact that I was able to walk out just was a breath of fresh air. By all accounts, you were a model prisoner. Your story got a lot of attention, and yet you found yourself where a lot of guys found themselves. Things didn't always come easy. What was the biggest struggle? The biggest struggle for me was housing and employment. All right. Well, thank you, and we're glad things are working out better for you. Thank you, sir. All right. 
So let's bring our next guest. Sean Pika served more than 15 years on manslaughter, turned his life around, and is now the executive director of Hudson Link for Higher Education in prison, providing education and life skills to incarcerated men and women and helping them re-enter society. Lawrence Bartley spent 27 years in prison. He's now the director of the publication News Inside for the Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization focusing on the U.S. criminal justice system. Lawrence and Sean both did time here at Sing Sing. And that brings us to Mike Capra, Michael Capra, who for the past seven years has been the superintendent of this facility after a long and impressive career in law enforcement. Great to see all of you. Thank you. Superintendent, thank you for, for hosting us here. Uh, your job here as the superintendent is essentially to, to keep the lid on, make sure everyone's safe, to make sure your employees get home safe at the end of the day. But you realize that wasn't enough and that programs were necessary. What do you find the more programs, the more occupational things that you can do here, how does that change the environment? Well, I think as a system, we certainly have declined in the amount of uh, inmates that we have. You see, the men that are here today, these two guys who I've known for many years here, have all been part of this uh, movement called Voices from Within, which is just a bunch of guys who really want to think about tomorrow, think about their children coming in. They don't want them to follow the same steps that they have followed, number one, and, and also to make an impact on the inmates who are here, to give them hope and to give them a positive role model to look for so that our system is a little bit safer. I was surprised when I went on my last visit here talking to the guys, and they, they want to be part of the change on the out, when they are on the outside, be part of the change. They all want to be part of it. They are a think tank group of people. If you ask these guys right now how many have a college education right now, most of them are going to raise their hands. And so when they get involved in uh, looking towards what can we do to change the culture inside and out and making this inside of the facility a safer place, they're so much involved and they have some fantastic ideas. Uh, and we're putting those, those ideas to work. So Sean, it's paying attention. And Sean, you came here when you were 16. Yes, I was arrested when I was 16 and left when I was 34. And, and how did this place change you for the better? Well, I know it sounds crazy, but I lived in nine maximum security prisons over 16 years. Um, I never met a warden until I got to Sing Sing. And Brian Fisher, who was the warden at the time, would walk the halls and talk to us like, hey, are you in school? Why are you, why are you out in here? And, and really push us. And I remember like it was yesterday, probably eight years ago, you said to me, hey, what if we did more? And it's just not a normal question from a superintendent in a maximum security prison to think about doing more here, like college and music and theater and, and introspective work to make us dig deeper into what causes to be here in the first place. And, and Lawrence, you've been out, what, about a year? Uh, Fifteen months. Fifteen months. He's 27 years in the system, nine of them here. Yes. Uh, what was it like stepping in the outside? Uh, it was wonderful. You know, I've been dreaming about my release since the first day I slept on a prison cot. And when I finally got the opportunity to get out, you know, just it was like the movies I had watched when you go into the future and all this technology you see. And I was I was marveled by it. I was like, wow, this is super great, you know. <laughs> so in doing that and, and when I finally got the opportunity for the Marshall Project to get uh, um, some gainful employment, you know, I didn't think that I was special, but I intentionally went out to do exceptionally well because... I was doing it for the men behind me. Yeah, let's talk about the men. Come on, take, let's take a walk with me. Let's talk about the men behind you. You know these guys, right? Very well. You know every one of them. Very, very well. What do, you, what do you tell them? What do you tell them about life on the outside? Oh, I say life on the outside is everything you dreamed of. Everything we always dreamed of it being, that's exactly what it's like. But 
when we, we spend all that time in, in creating those programs that came out of our head and every step of the way that we were not getting paid for it, we just toiled through it, we argued through our meetings, but all of it is worth it because those skills are transferable on the outside. And if you do that, you set the bar high and not only are you doing it for yourself and your family, you're doing it for everyone wearing a prison uniform in the country that just wants a chance. But it's, but it's hard. It's hard. It is hard. I won't, I won't say it's easy. It's very hard. It's, it's difficult, but I intentionally deny the difficulty because I can't afford to fail. Because if I fail, they all fail. My children fail. I can't do it. And, and what about how society looks at you? We talked, you know, with, with John a little while about checking the box. That you, you were a felon. I mean, people ask you, why were you here? And, and that's got to be a difficult conversation. It is a difficult conversation, but I like to think that my character speaks for itself. I am not who I was at 17 years old when I committed a crime. In fact, I changed when I was still in my teens. And I had to suffer through a decades of incarceration when I wasn't that same individual anymore. So when I'm on the outside, if people look down on me because I'm incarcerated, I tell myself that's none of my business. That's their perception. Has nothing to do with the way I'm going to live my life. All right. Thank you for that. We're going to be back with John Legend as well as some personal reflections and final thoughts on what we've talked about here today when we return in a moment. We're back at Sing Sing with John Legend for some final thoughts. You know, the thing I keep thinking of is the figure that 95% of those locked up are going to get out someday. They're mm-hmm. going to be on our streets and our neighborhoods. With that in mind, what do you want to leave our viewers with? I think the key is that we see each other's humanity. I think this nation has a legacy of treating certain people like they were subhuman. I think slavery was part of the uh, reason that that has been part of our national culture. But we have to see everybody black, brown, whatever they are, uh, whatever community they come from, as part of our national community. Think of their humanity. Think of their families. Think of their emotions. Think of their uh, possibilities for redemption. And then structure our system uh, to account for that. And every dollar we spend on prisons, every dollar we spend on punishment, is dollars we can't spend on education, on health care, on the things that makes our community stronger, and let's continue to invest in things that make us stronger and stop investing so much in punishment. Well, John, you are obviously a a huge, important part of this conversation, so we thank you. Uh, Much of our conversation today was framed by the many questions I wrestled with during my brief time visiting behind bars in Angola prison, including one that I wrote down. I wrote, could any of us, under the right circumstances, make a mistake that would take away our freedom? And then what? Where do accountability and punishment end and rehabilitation and redemption begin? And can there truly be justice for all on both sides of these walls? It's a long, long conversation, certainly longer than one hour allows, but it's one I'm dedicated to further exploring. I want to thank John Legend, Loretta Lynch, and all of our panelists, as well as Mike Capper and his team here at Sing Sing Correctional Facility for hosting this important event. For all of us at NBC News, thank you for watching and so long. New from Meet the Press, the Chuck Todd cast. 
It's an insider's take on politics, the 2020 election, and more. Candid conversations with some of my favorite reporters about things we usually discuss off camera. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts.